Welcome to the life of a global desi. A podcast that connects like-minded desis all over the globe by conforming to stereotypes and breaking them. Introducing Life of a Global Desi interviews. Yes, we bring to you our conversations with remarkable global desis who are doing some truly cool things in life. The idea is to bring fresh perspectives, add diverse voices, and expand the global desi community. On to our episode now. The guest on today's show is Shruti Bhaskaran, an engineer turned consultant and food fairy from Chennai, India. She moved to the United States to pursue an engineering degree at Penn State. She has since worked at the Boston Consulting Group, the United Nations, and received a dual MS/MBA from the Stanford University. She currently works at BCG Seattle almost exclusively on social impact projects, particularly around food systems. She's meandered both professionally and geographically and has lived, worked and traveled to more than 60 countries in the last decade. Oh, and she runs a food blog called Urban Farmy, which is all about seasonal vegetarian food inspired by unique flavors from her globe trotting. She lives in Seattle with her Nigerian partner. Hope you enjoy this mouth-watering conversation with Shruti. Hey everyone, this is Archana and this is Aarti. Our special guest today is someone who is to surely make us super hungry by the end of the podcast, but also help us explore and deepen our relationship with food. So, please welcome Shruti Bhaskaran. Hi Shruti. Hey Shruti. Woohoo. Hi guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for being here. So, um I know Archana or my sis knows you from the time you both worked at BCG Houston, but for me and our guest to know you a little better, we have an icebreaker for you. Here goes. <laughs> If you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, <laughs> what would it be? This is an easy one. Um, <laughs> and it's probably one that's going to make all the, you know, Indians listening to this go, of course she said that. Um, it's going to be tahir sadam, which is curd rice. <laughs> wow. You are such a typical <laughs> tamprav, I must say, Shruti. You know, yeah, I was going to say, not all Indians tamprabs so specifically. <laughs> no, but even the other Indians are going to be like, of course she said that, she's madrasi. <laughs> I... <laughs> Yeah. I think I've like I can give up on anything else but you know good curd rice grandma style with like a really like spicy pickle. I can eat that all day every day every meal breakfast lunch dinner. That sounds incredible also because it's supposed to be really good for your body and like cooling it down just generally and I've been thinking a lot more about that because I've been having this crazy pimple outbreak so yes curd and yogurt for just cooling your body down perfect especially for tropical south indians absolutely yes. uh, moving on um we find that early influences like really shape someone's world view and um we're so curious to know what were some of your early influences growing up and uh, as a result what are some identities that you strongly associate with That's a good question. I think I would say my 
parents are continue to remain very strong influences on my um, on my life um, and also my grandfather um, my mother's father was probably one of the strongest influencers in my life um, he worked at the Reserve Bank of India and you know was just a very like well-read worldly person uh, and in fact the person that like inspired me to seek out opportunities in the US to begin with um, he used to like read Leo Tolstoy to me when I was four years old uh, and would always talk about the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as like this pinnacle of like engineering and like whatever else in the world. Um, and I think very young, I was kind of bitten by this like travel bug from that perspective and just wanted to continue to seek out those experiences for myself when I finally got to an age where I could do that. That's great. And what are some identities that you strongly associate with? I would probably say I Indian is, is, is a very strong identity. I think Tambram was thrown out there as well. And I, I do think of myself as Tambram, even though like it's it's kind of a complicated like family story in some ways. Uh, and off late, you know, I moved to the US in 2008. And so immigrant, I think, is a very strong mm identity that I've come to associate with in the especially I think in the last five or six years that's uh, so interesting that you say immigrant and and I think you know that that definitely would um you know beg me to kind of ask this question like we're excited to hear about what your journey has been right from India to the U.S. so why don't you help us like walk us through that journey and all the milestones maybe that led you to where you are today and and really connect the dots for us? Yeah, um, it's a really weird meandering story, I would say. Um, so I grew up in yeah, Chennai. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, good Saturday afternoon activity. Um, so I grew up in Chennai, so Madras, as I like to think of it, and Lived for a few years in Delhi when I was growing up. Um, and then I applied to uh, a couple of different universities in the US, UK, Singapore, when I was graduating high school. Uh, and I think that's that's what took me out of home. And I the rationale for it was a little bit, you know, I like I said, inspired by my grandfather in some ways, because I it was just kind of assumed that I would become a doctor or an engineer in my family, because, you know, obviously everybody is one of the two. Um, and then I was interested in going in one of those routes, but then I didn't want that to be the only thing that I did. I think I was very like attracted to this idea of a liberal arts education. Um, even though I will admit that like what I perceived to be <laughs> a liberal arts education when I was 16 is probably not what I associate with that today. Um, and this lure of like moving to America, like where you can be whatever you want to be and like do all of these different cool things at the same time without like pigeonholing yourself was really attractive. Um, mm. And then I, I, you know, I won a scholarship and I moved, I uh, went to Penn State for my undergrad and I studied energy engineering, which, so, you know, funnily enough is I think what brought me to Houston to begin with, uh, where I met oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that makes yeah, sense. So when I graduated from college, so uh, before I graduated from college, I would probably say sophomore, junior year of college, I really started getting into food systems. Even though I was studying energy, I was really intrigued by this like intersection of energy and food because often, you know, people talk about those things as separate, but like land is a precious commodity. And I think it kind of connects both of those aspects together. Um, and 
I don't know, one thing led to another. I won some engineering design competition. And before I knew it, I was in Kenya <laughs> starting a greenhouse startup, working with like local communities, trying to like help folks kind of like, you know, small scale farmers um, develop greenhouses on their property so that they can grow more cash producing crops versus just subsistence crops. Um, and so that was like its own, like kind of like meandering trajectory, which really like emphasized and like highlighted to me that food was where I wanted to spend the rest of my life, even though I was studying energy and I was interested in energy. But when I graduated from Penn State, I thought I wanted to like really sharpen my, just my professional skill set, if you will, because, you know, academic life is one thing, going and starting a startup in like an emerging market is another thing. I just felt that I wanted the core business building blocks in order to make something out of it, uh, which is what brought me to BCG, the Boston Consulting Group in the Houston office, Mm -hmm. uh, where I, for the better part of two years, predominantly worked on oil and gas projects, which is kind of a very like remarkable deviation from like my social impact tendencies and like uh, just what I wanted to do longer term. And so at the end of those two years, I wanted to like go back into the food system space, took a leave of absence from BCG, moved to Italy to work for the UN. So even though I was uh, working for the World Food Program at their headquarters in Rome, I actually ended up covering many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa as uh, the chief of staff for the director of innovation. And you know, up until this point, it was kind of like different professional experiences, like a zigzag between like energy and food. Um, and I started stopping to think about like, what do I want to do next? Like where, where is this journey taking me from a professional perspective mainly? Um, and as I like reflected on that, it became clear to me that grad school was very much on the horizon. Um, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to go more of a traditional route, at least for consultants and do a master's, like get an MBA essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. or if I wanted to go pursue public policy, if I wanted to like actually double down and like really understand food systems and earth systems and resources and things like that, um, ended up doing like a combination of all of that. I, um, was super, super fortunate to have gotten into Stanford where I did a dual degree. And once I finished that degree, I came back to BCG, but I moved to the Seattle office, uh, and essentially kind of like you know, ingrained myself into our social impact practice area at BCG, which is a pretty like global set of like portfolio of projects uh, where I primarily lead projects on agriculture, food systems and nutrition. So that's kind of where I am right now. And in the process of all of this, you know, I've traveled, (laughs) I think maybe lived, worked in 60-ish countries. Um, Wow. (laughs) A lot of countries in Africa, I think that like a lot of other people might not have necessarily uh, thought to go to on their first choice of like travel destinations. Um, and my partner is Nigerian. So I think that also like has brought with it its own kind of journey <laughs> of being a global Desi, <laughs> according to your podcast. That's such a beautiful way to explore, you know, the world. And of course, Africa is always one of those, you know, mystical continents, which you're right. Like if you if you go there once and you just fall in love with that place and you kind of visit all the countries there, that's a lot of countries. So that's fantastic. And thanks for sharing that um, fascinating journey so far. And I think the one thing that um, really strikes me is how despite not really maybe having the full big picture of how the dots might connect, 
at every given point, you kind of 100% immersed yourself in what you were doing at that point, right? Even if, say, it was um, random oil and gas work at, at, uh, in consulting or then, you know, really trying to figure out what, what, it, what it is that your passions lie in, uh, which I, I really think it's evident that bring us to the, this point where you kind of finally see the dots connecting for yourself. And, and it's, it's so interesting to hear that. Um, I'm also curious, Shruti, having moved out of home, um, you know, India back, back, you know, back in India, so early in your life, leaving at such a young age, how did you find and build a home in the US through that process, right? Because you mentioned immigrant is a pretty big identity that you associate associate with. And so curious to hear about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I get asked this question a lot because nowadays when you ask me what is home, I say Seattle, which is perhaps an, you know, a building like quarter life crisis in and of itself. Um, I actually think that it was relatively easy for me to create a community for myself because, you know, when you're 16 or 17 and you're moving to a new country, everything is exciting. It's an adventure. You know, you move from home into this community, which is the first time you're moving from home anyway. But I think in my case, I just decided to do that 20,000 miles away from where I was located before. Um, But I never felt like I struggled to find that community because I've always had this like really close I tend to think of these people as like my personal like board of advisors almost at like each level of my of my life, whether that was in undergrad or, you know, early BCG days at the UN, Stanford, whatever it is. Um, And so I think like forming that sense of community was relatively easy because I just latched on to a select few people Um, and in a really fun and kind of surprising way that really brings everything back to food at the end of the day. Um, Community was food. I think I I like to tell people that food is my love language. When I applied to Stanford, I wrote a love sonnet to food. Um, And it was this sense of like, everybody can come together over a dinner table, no matter where you're from, what your values are, what your prior life experiences might have been, and share like a really good you know, meal together and get to know each other that way. I think that has really been the basis of most of my relationships and community in the U.S. or or outside. That sounds absolutely beautiful. And uh, I do agree there is something to the whole idea of breaking bread with someone that connects you with them at a deeper level and like sharing meals and uh, sharing that love and joy and the warmth. We would love to be on one of your you know, feasts at one of your feasts because Sis and I uh, consider ourselves foodie only because we love to eat food. Uh, but then again, almost everyone we know is like a foodie these days. But I think you take it to a whole different level from what I gather from your blog and like the mouth-watering recipes you have on there. Uh, when did your love affair with food begin? Um, you alluded a little bit to this with, you know, your experience in Kenya. But uh, was there any other incident or an earlier incident? So what's the earliest experience that you can pin it to, if you had to? Oh, that's a, 
That's a good question. And it's summertime. And I think you have reminded me of like how much I miss mangoes. Banganapali oh. Indian mangoes. You just don't <laughs> yes. get those mangoes I here. Love, yeah, I love that you know about Banganapali. Like yeah. everyone goes all about Alfonso's. Oh. But yeah, I feel like haven't you had Banganapali? And it's such a like acquired taste too, right? It's like people that argue about French mm-hmm. wine versus Italian wine. And I tell them I like Italian wine more. And they're just like, oh, gasp. Like how could you... And I'm just like, no, Banganapali mangoes. Like that's, and so like when I think about my first memories of food, I think there's actually a picture of my, so I'm an only child, which is great. I'm very pampered. <laughs> and I was the only grandchild on my mom's side of the family for like 14 years of my life. So it was like, and I was wow. the youngest grandchild on my dad's side of the family for about 10 years of my life. So I was ultra spoiled, right? Uh, and I think earliest food memory is probably this one picture that my parents have of my face that is like framed up in their bedroom. It's like massive. Um, and I'm like four years old. I have this like mass, like big bungan, which it looks as big as my head at this point because it's, you know, bunganapoli <laughs> mangoes are like humongous. Uh, and I just have like mango all over my face. I have two missing teeth at the front. And like, I just remember... Oh. The story behind that was that I was actually not feeling well. And you know how like Indian moms are like, no, no, no sweets when you're not feeling well or whatever. My grandmother snuck me a mango anyway. And then I was eating. Trust the- grandparents know, to do that's that. That's what they do. Um, and I like ate the mango. And they like, you know, ran out of the kitchen where she was trying to keep it discreet and ran into my mom who asked me if I was eating mangoes. And I was like, no, of course not. And I have mango all over my face. <laughs> Um, and of course they and my mom just like laughed and you know took a picture of it and now that's on their bedroom wall as all Indian parents have a shrine to their kids you know I know <laughs> that's that my earliest memory ever I could totally imagine that like picture it the way you described it that's so adorable we would love to see that picture on your blog if you could totally post it and write that entire you know uh story like share that story it's so cute someday someday (laughs) speaking of your blog we want to know more about like how did you get started with food blogging and i have come across a term on your blog which i find very intriguing which is an urban farmie or this idea of being a farmie could you elaborate on that please yeah and i think you know it kind of goes back to what both of you said about how almost everyone you know these days is a foodie, meaning you have a sense of like, almost like a a taste-based appreciation of food. Um, But the one thing that I've probably spent the last, I would say a relatively good part of the last decade working on is kind of the other aspect of it, like the farm aspect of it, which is where does your food really come from? Um, and it was, it was, it was a pretty like surprising journey for me to like stop and ask a bunch of my foodie friends, like, do you know where this food comes from? Right. An average meal you put on your plate. Um, and I think the conversation around environmental sustainability or health or, you know, all of these other values associated with food has become so polarizing these days. Like you can either be a tree hugging vegan, or you'll say you'd never give up on meat. You can either say, I'm going to go for the cheapest thing possible, or you only shop at Whole Foods and you're always spending $15 for like a gallon of milk. And there's just, the middle ground has been completely lost and drowned out in these like vocal, um, like minorities of like very extreme opinions. 
And I think farming was like my way of counterbalancing that in some ways. Like what I really wanted to do was to connect the dots between what you're eating and where it actually comes from. Uh, and I've done like crazy things. Like, you know, I followed a bag of kale from where it was produced in a field in Kenya all the way back to a market in Nairobi. I've done this like from California to Chicago. I've done random, you know, random stuff like that where it truly like stops and makes you appreciate just how much effort goes into getting the food you eat to a supermarket and it connects you with the lives of the people that are doing that on a day-to-day basis that you simply don't get to see um and so i think the blog was actually kind of a halfway mark of like connecting my personal love for food and cooking with my professional kind of like identity if you will of like connecting people with the food they eat and connecting individual consumer behavior to large-scale action, whether that was through private sector or legislative action or whatever you want to call it. And so Urban Farmy was my ode to (laughs) millennials who love to eat, uh, but by writing recipes where I would sneak in a little tidbit of like, you know, don't buy asparagus in the winter because it is grown and, you know, (laughs) flown in from like Latin America on a plane. In fact, I would much rather you go and eat local grass-fed lamb than for you to be vegetarian, but you're eating asparagus in the winter. Um, And I think it it just lands better on people when you give them something of value, which is usually a really detailed, crisp recipe that they can follow and enjoy. But in the process of that, a small bite-sized, you know, nugget of information that they'll keep in mind, and hopefully it becomes a habit uh, and leads to more conscious consumption. I absolutely agree with uh, the way you've described your blog, right, so far, because I find that every single piece of yours is so thoroughly researched and you make preparing food looks looks so uh, easy and also just so exotic. And, uh, and I think that's what draws at least me to the blog. And I'm, you know, I'm sure all the other readers as well. I'm curious, Shruti, um, you know, I've been hearing a lot about you know, all the millennials that I know around me are just so intimidated in general by cooking food at home. You hear every, you hear about everyone kind of just getting these to-go meals or picking up meals at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. What do you think? Why do you think that is a or DIY? And what is a sorry? Just wanted to ask. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah like exactly, You get right? all the ingredients which are almost half like done. Prepped. All you need to do is put <laughs> yeah. them together. Yeah, meal put prep. Put together. Also. Blue apron. Meal I know, prep I salad. Blue apron. <laughs> exactly. Or, yeah, absolutely. Or these blue apron type meal services. I'm curious, why do you think millennials are so intimidated, A, by cooking food at home from with fresh ingredients? And also, what's a common myth, right, about mm. cooking food at home uh, that we all have? And can you de- debunk it for us? Interesting question. And I will admit, I've had some time to think about this. And the way I describe it, and this is the same way I describe it on my blog, if you start playing Mario Kart, you don't expect to become like the master champion in one session. But then when it comes to cooking, I think people just have this like unrealistic expectation for themselves on what it should taste like uh, and hold themselves to a standard where anything other than the perfect meal is not good enough. It's not Insta-worthy. It's not soaked in butter like you know 90% of everything that's ever made in a restaurant which is why it's so delicious um and I think the values again kind of going back to this like conscious consumption piece 
taste becomes the only value, taste and aesthetic become the only value that is appreciated versus, you know, the joy of cooking together or treating it like Mario Kart and saying, okay, I'm going to learn one hack today. I'm going to like learn how to like, I don't know, cook tomatoes down the perfect way possible, or I'm going to just learn how to make eggs. And then you kind of layer each of those things on top of each other until you can build a complex meal. But then it's kind of like, you know, if you write a cheat sheet for yourself or if you often find yourself like reaching for those shortcuts, odds are you're never really going to learn how to do it properly. And I think that's where the pre-prepared stuff and, you know, like I think one common misconception is that home cooking is very arduous, that it takes a lot of time. Mm Yeah, it will if you're trying to make like a 17 course dinner every day, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and in my case, like I still work at BCG. I work 14, 16 hour days on a routine basis. But even... Run a full-time I, blog. <laughs> full-time. <laughs> full-time blog. My garage is my photo studio for my blog. So that's also my exercise mechanism. So I keep going up and down to like take mm. pictures of my stuff. Um, but I think... You know, and I've literally like other than the times when I used to travel for work Monday through Thursday, every time I've been on a local project, I have made at least dinner every single night. Hmm. Right. And I like the challenge I have for people maybe listening to this is if I can work a 14 hour day and make a meal for my myself and my partner, it is possible. I You know, it's not always the most elaborate thing, but I think it has to come from a place of like prioritizing what cooking at home actually means for you. Um, Maybe Mm. that means spending time with your kids or your family because, you know, that's the 30 minutes that you can have your kids chop up something and then you're cooking and you make it a family experience or it's about eating healthier. Uh, No matter how much you can like prioritize, like a chopped salad from sweet greens or evergreens or whatever the new rage is right now, (laughs) if you're willing to pay $15 for it, getting the ingredients and like just literally spending an hour on a Sunday chopping it and putting it in separate boxes and putting it together will be five bucks. So you can think about it as a, a, you know, a money saving mechanism, like whatever it is, just thinking about it from the perspective of what value does that bring can help make it a better habit and stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, you know, some really great advice that you're, you're sharing right there. And I'm also curious to hear, um, you know, how should people think about being more mindful about their food habits? You alluded to this a little bit earlier, but just in general, right? I know some people, it's a spectrum. Some people, like you said, are on the whole foods spectrum. And Arti and I jokingly call it whole foods, whole paycheck, because it's almost like you're spending <laughs> so your entire paycheck, paycheck on whole foods. <laughs> and or you're, you know, kind of just going to Walmart or the dollar store, be like, hey, I'm, I'm just going to pick up like the cheapest stuff available. So, you know, how can people be more moderate on that spectrum or, or you know, think, be more deliberate and mindful about their food habits and choices? Um, yeah, I think. A couple of things. One, you don't have to do all of it at once. You can, yeah. first of all, in like take an inventory of what you eat. Not everybody eats the same things, right? Like if you automatically don't drink a ton of milk, don't eat a ton of meat, like you're you're doing a great job for the environment already. Um, and also, like I tend to think of this as like a food value hierarchy. Right. Like Maslow's hierarchy is like super clear. Everybody knows about it these days. It's all Mm. the rage. But like everybody has a food value hierarchy for someone who is a single mom who's like 
living on an hourly wage, I don't think it's fair to go up to that person and say, oh, you should totally go and only buy sustainable, whatever, organic butter from Whole Foods. But at the same time, when I look at my fr- some of my friends here, it's like, why not, right? Like, you just have mm-hmm. to, like, think about between taste and price and um, and health and environment and labor conditions. Like, there's all of these different values floating around. And maybe you care about all of them, but, like, actually spend 30 minutes to, like, understand what those values mean for yourself and use that to make decisions because otherwise, choice paralysis is very real. You go to Trader Joe's, you see mm-hmm. 65 mm-hmm. types of milk, and you're like, I'm just going to pick the one that is the cheapest. I'm going to grab it and I'm out of the door because you don't want to be standing there on your grocery trip trying to understand, read labels and figure out what those things represent. Um, The other thing is like not everything needs to be organic. Not everything needs to be sustainable. Right. And depending on where you live in the United States, for instance, like odds are in California, just buy California produce. That's it. It's as simple as that. If you live on the West Coast or if you live in the Midwest, it's actually maybe better for you to eat meat than for you to be vegetarian. And it's okay. So like just thinking about, you know, some of those trade-offs on a personal level is really important. And don't try to make all the changes at once, right? Like it can be as simple as like knowing that, and I think like growing up in India, you just did this automatically because you did not get mangoes in the winter. (laughs) You know that mangoes were only for the summertime. So you were eating seasonal automatically. And then Mm -hmm. suddenly, like, just think, and I I keep going back to mangoes as, like, a phenomenal example because even if you got mangoes in the winter, you probably wouldn't eat it in India, right? So why do you think it's okay to, like, eat mangoes in the winter in the U.S.? It's terrible. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Um, I think spending the 10 minutes to, like, just... Literally, like, even, like, 10 minutes a month and Googling what is in season in July will tell you, okay, these are the things. There's berries, there's mangoes, there's tomatoes, whatever it is. And then just start there. Um, And also, I think it is good for your health to know when you should go organic or not. For berries, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you eat the skin, which is where all the pesticides sit. So Mm -hmm. try to buy organic if you can. If you can't afford it, it's fine. It's still FDA approved. So it's not like they're feeding you a ton of like negative consequences. Whenever like bananas, who cares? Like, you know, you're going to throw the rest of it out anyway. So eat whatever you want. Um, anyway, I can talk yeah, about this for hours. About... <laughs> you guys realize. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I can I can tell that you've, you've really done your research. And I mean, this is what you do for a living, right? So that's <laughs> one of the reasons we wanted you on the podcast. And talking about bananas, it's so interesting because... Um, I recently read this article where India has such a vast variety of, you know, indigenous banana, like basically the banana Mm -hmm. varieties, but the market has been flooded by these uh, massive, beautiful looking, those Chiquita bananas that the local varieties are just diminishing, right? And and if it were not for these traditional Tambram uh, recipes that call for a certain type of banana, mm-hmm. um, those bananas just wouldn't be grown mm-hmm. anymore, which is also so interesting about keeping up traditional food mm-hmm. habits Preserving and recipes cultures. and those. Yeah, absolutely. And like yeah, understanding so, that mm-hmm. it was done for a reason. I think there's a, a general trend of like, and I see this in so many of my friends where growing up, you know, you consume a lot of like Western media or, you know, you want to mm-hmm. be modern. You want to be Western. And there's just like mental perception that somehow 
your own culture is backwards. Um, and I like very strongly reject that notion. Right. And my partner does too. He's like very like proudly Nigerian. Um, and you know, we've all gone to the best universities in the world and like done all of these mm. things, but like, you know, on a day to day basis, if I say like over a week, I probably eat Indian food three to four times. I make busy balabad. I make sambar. I, I told you, like I would eat curd Amazing. rice all yeah. day. All, all day, life. every yeah. day. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah. And I would prefer that to avocado toast. Avocado toast is great. But, you know, when I'm feeling down, when I'm like not feeling well, the first thing I reach for is like home food. Right. And so I think there's just this sense of like at the beginning, you like try so hard to be modern and Western and all of that. And then you eventually get to a point where you start appreciating your own culture. You start craving that like little piece of home because you live so far away from it and you just want more of it. Um, and I think if I had to say one thing, it's good for all of us to stop and reflect and ask, like, why should it come to like homesickness before we appreciate our own food or our culture or things that are indigenous to like where we come from? Mm -hmm. um, because we've been told that those things, you know, over years of colonization or like Western like media perception that like it's backwards and it's not. It absolutely isn't. There's a great show on Hulu right now by Padma Lakshmi, who is literally like my like spirit, <laughs> like Food I just, I can't, like if I could like just go and live with her for the rest of my life, I would also do that. Uh, <laughs> but it's called Pace the Nation and it really gets into like hmm. this idea of like what makes what's American, American and explores like the immigrant identity through all of these different like foods in the US brought in by, you know, people from all over the world. It's like, if you can eat chicken tikka masala, you can also eat like, you know, whatever your indigenous banana variety is. Like, they come from the same place. That is so cool. I, a lot of stuff that you said, I deeply resonated with it. Uh, something that I do want to uh, just uh, highlight here is what you said about, I know you're a vegetarian and uh, your blog's like, you're, you're tambab, so I mean, easy assumption there. Uh, and also your blog has such incredible vegetarian recipes. Personally, like, just trying to relate to the story of mine, which I just turned vegetarian, like, a couple of years ago for, like, two years in the middle. And then I realized that um, my vitamin B12s were, like, really down. Mm -hmm. I, like, did that for environmental reasons. Uh, but then I also, like, learned later that your B12, uh, like, the natural source for B12 tends to be meat and, like, non-vegetarian food. And then, you know, I kind of started to, uh, you know, start becoming a vegetarian again and so on. And uh, this this was like my journey with food. And um, I'm sure, and I'm discovering things as I'm going with it because of the kind of effects it's having on me. For example, um, I've, I've been working out a lot lately and doing like the app challenge and suddenly I had this craving for meat. Like for six mm. months I've been, uh, during the quarantine, again, back to vegetarian. Just had this deep craving for some more protein, right? Like Like meat. So I kind of, had some meat and then last night sis and i watched okja together and i was just like i cannot get myself to finish the rest <laughs> of the lasagna that i ordered and now i'm just so put off by it yeah. so um i i think so the question that i was actually getting at is um through like your food journey what are some things that you wish you had known when you started out um and uh, you know, start out becoming like a conscious food consumer? Because I feel like I'm learning this stuff as I go along. And like, how, how do you think you can make this journey a little easier? What are some highlights that you would like to share mm. with people? Some 
top learnings through this journey and uh, i just again want to say i love what you said about like if you live in the midwest maybe eating meat is better better option for you so yeah yeah i think the way so i've been vegetarian loose i think i mean i've never had meat in my life but i eat eggs um i think a lot of like people who think of themselves as vegetarian eat eggs um Mm-hmm. and what or like bengalis who eat fish uh, yeah and like, oh, right and they're just like oh, of course like it's like it's in the sea it's fine it's just like a vegetable from the sea um <laughs> and i think you know there's like a lot of misperceptions of like what is good and what is not and people just like kind of run with it without actually stopping to understand the process behind it right and my and it's really important to know what your reason is for going vegetarian and whether those I'm I'm using that as one example but like for knowing why you want to go vegetarian and to know whether it's really true. Right? Like some people will be like, "Oh my god, I can't eat eggs because like whatever." And then I like stop and I ask them, "Do you understand how the dairy industry works? Do you understand how milk is made? They literally like impregnate cows. They the cow gives birth to a child like a calf. The calf is taken away for meat and then they hook up the cow to some kind of a milking machine." until she runs out of cat milk and then they impregnate her again in what like but this is this is the US right that's the US in India it's different because there's a milkman and the calf first you know gets to drink the milk and then they take the rest of the milk there's some like you know just ethical kind of like because we worship cows they don't mistreat the cows there's mm-hmm. all of that but then India is also the third largest exporter of beef in the world because all those cows that can stop giving milk at some point what do you think happens to those old cows they get sold to the butcher so wow. there are things like this that like it's it's complicated right and you're never going to i think people look for so crave these black and white solutions which like what works for you is not going to work for me um and in my own case like i think where i have landed is that one it is complicated and acknowledging that it is complicated uh two the answer for everybody is very different um and also like my own reason for being vegetarian is that this whole point around connection to food if you can take a live chicken strangle it and then cook it you deserve to eat meat i can't watch something die <laughs> So then I should not be able to enjoy its flesh. And it's maybe like a very like mm. brahminical like religious spiritual like kind of like mentality, right? Because Hindus did not eat meat because we're all of the same soul. We mm. all come from this universal consciousness which is like and I'm I'm not even like super religious necessarily. Um but that idea is very appealing to me, which is the sanctity of life is life no matter what. Uh my partner on the other hand Oh, he can eat whatever he wants because like he's definitely done all of that. He's taken a crab out of the, like the water in Lagos and like, you know, put it in boiling water and killed it and made whatever crab cakes mm-hmm. with it. He has killed and like whatever prepared chicken for his mother. He comes from a uh his mother is Muslim, so they celebrate Eid, which means and yes, this Tambram Nigerian Muslim dynamic is another podcast. What an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> um but I think, you know, where I'm going with all of that is that he knows his food values mm-hmm. and he lives by them. So don't don't live by someone else's food values. Try mm-hmm. and understand, you know, if you have a vitamin B12 deficiency, know mm-hmm. what is going to like fix that within the parameters of what you're willing to accept. Whether that is 
you know, eating eggs or whether that is committing to only buying humane grass-fed meat or whatever else, right? Like saying I'm only going to eat salmon or something, whatever it might be, like the you can draw the line at various points along the way. And I think there are choices, no matter, there's like the binary choice of if you eat something and then there's like the secondary choice of like what it is that you actually eat within that bucket. Like you can say I will eat beef, but there's a huge difference between eating factory farmed mass produced beef and getting beef from whatever your local farm is where you know they are treating their animals with care and living a good life, giving them a good life, and then butchering it for the sake of like serving another purpose. So yeah, I think it's complicated. So don't try to make it easy. Just do what works for you. Uh, yeah, I love that. Thanks so much for that advice. And what I really admired from what you just shared was how you and your partner have such different food values, but still you coexist together <laughs> under the same roof in harmony. And that is... Harmony, I don't know. You're not trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I was trying to get to the point of like not trying to convert everyone to like your food values, essentially, right? And um, not going off on the self-righteous spiel of oh no, mm-hmm. you've got to turn vegetarian for the environment and so on. And love your advice about just identifying what your own food values are and really thinking about it deeper. So yeah i think that was my biggest takeaway right just the fact that there is no need to have judgment but you know just be more tolerant of all the diverse perspectives even when it comes to food because i feel like some of us can get so highbrow about oh you know how can you do that how can you eat something like this but but you're right it's really about finding out the why behind why you do it or um you know and of course if it's done ethically like you know ethically sustainably then that's just a cherry on the top mm-hmm. so that's awesome and this has been so much fun shruti i'm i'm really um you know excited to hear about right now what are you most curious about and what are your hopes for the future with you know food and how the food industry is or or even just anything else that you're curious about right now i think i'm probably most curious about the trajectory that i've been on professionally Right. And I think this is probably true for a lot of kids that I grew up with, where there's just your path has been set for you in some ways. You have to do well in school. You have to get into the best college. You have to get the best job. You have to keep advancing in your job. You have to like hit a certain trajectory. You have to get married. You have to have kids and so on and so forth. And I think over the course of my life, in every one of those steps, I have taken a moderate detour and sometimes a very sharp detour you know like nigerian muslim man as a partner um Hmm. and i think now i'm at a point in my life where i'm just stopping to question if this like i in the past i have taken detours but i've still stayed mostly on the same path um and now i'm just stopping to think like what happens if i quit bcg and run a blog full-time does it you know like what what if i just want a slower life what if i just want to like move to the suburbs and like set up a greenhouse and have kids or whatever like does that make me any less than what I've been doing so far and so I'm just like kind of toying with the extremes of like what is it that I really want outside of the expectations that have been set for me I think from the start. Uh, and I'm not saying that I'm going to quit tomorrow and go run my food blog full time. <laughs> I'd probably drive myself crazy, but I do think that there is some 
middle ground in there of like, this is a theme with me. I'm like all about moderation, right? Um, Love it. Of finding what, what that path could look like for me, where I can still keep myself intellectually engaged with like a topic that I'm deeply passionate about without necessarily making that my life in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Shruti, I so deeply resonated with <laughs> everything that you just said. Like I resonated so hard because I feel like that's exactly where I am with myself in my life. Uh, but also what you said about moderation, I just wanted to throw a quote out there, which is everything in moderation, including moderation, <laughs> is what I know a lot. So, uh, yeah, thanks for I that. I love that. Everything in moderation, yeah. including moderation. <laughs> I think I think that is so well said. I feel I feel like I notice more and more uh, folks in our generation really struggling with this idea of, um, you know, how do I balance that? extremely type A personality that I've been built to kind of or groomed to kind of have uh, and excel in everything and everything that you just said plus also be authentic Mm. with what is it that you really do care about or are passionate about or that you know really sparks joy according to you know Marie Kondo in your life (laughs) Um, yeah right and and I think a lot of lot of us are struggling with it, but I think are also beautifully finding the journey and, and are on that journey to explore that, right? Um, hopefully we'll all get there or maybe the journey itself is the reward. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, I'm, I'm excited to find out too and, and hope you do too, Shruti. So finally, um, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about the term Global Desi. What does the term Global Desi mean to you? How and why do you identify as a Global Desi if you do? Good question. I think in my own life and experience, Global Desi is the Indian version of third culture kid. You know, the folks that had a strong rooted identity and sense of self that dates back centuries and thousands of years of just culture and richness of tradition, but learning to adapt and live in a modern world where things are changing. Uh, And sometimes that means beating the patriarchy. (laughs) Sometimes that means thinking beyond the lines of caste and religion and, you know, all of those other things that existed in its own time for good reason and are perhaps outdated today. Um, And I think that to me is global. Um, And how do I identify as it? I mean, I, I, you know, I keep coming back to my Thayrsadam At the end of the day, that's all I want, right? When I'm tired and I'm weary, I want a bowl of curd rice. Uh, And sometimes these days it just happens via FaceTime instead of in real life. Totally, totally. That's that's fantastic. And, um, you know, more tires are for you. <laughs> that I should be its own thing. Hashtag. I know, right? More tires. That, that's more tires are for you. I am so down for yeah. that. <laughs> Shruti, what else, what else would you like listeners to know about you here? And, you know, where can people find you on social media? We'll obviously post links to your blog. But um, yeah, is there anything else you wish we had asked you but didn't and really want, you know, you want to kind of wrap it up here for us? I think we covered a whole bunch of stuff that I, you know, love talking about. Clearly, I can talk more about it than we talked about, <laughs> which is probably true for any of us that like, you know, likes or is passionate about a certain topic. Uh, I am at Urban Farmy on Instagram. Um, and I would probably say the one thing that I probably enjoy more than anything else is helping people 
figure out that journey of like what their food values mm-hmm. are and how they can make that their own. And so if anyone listening is like curious, just wants to have a conversation, send me a DM on, on at Urban Farby. And I am more than happy to actually like sit down and think through whatever might be helpful. That's awesome. And I have checked out your Instagram page and everything you put on there is mouth-watering. And, and particularly, I feel like you've, um, even from the first few posts, I think just the quality of how you're presenting the pictures and the food, it just keeps getting more and more mouth-watering. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just, you know, worried about anyone who's scrolling through that on a hungry stomach <laughs> because, you know, hopefully they can either go make it for themselves or be invited to one of your fantastic mm. feasts that I know you throw quite often as well. So... That's awesome. Thank you so much, Shruti. It was so, so so fun having you on the podcast. Thanks, guys. It was really fun getting back and connecting. I haven't seen you in years. Yes. (laughs) I know. It's been six years and I'm, uh, you know, this is, again, one of the reasons Aarti and I do this is to connect back with some of our friends who are doing such cool stuff in life and, uh, you know, want to share it with the rest of the world. Yes. Awesome. So thank you so much. And to our listeners... Hope you enjoyed this episode and um, stay curious and keep keep listening. Peace out. Hey, Daisies. If you enjoyed this episode, then please rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you're listening to podcasts. And drop us a note on lifeofaglobaldesi at gmail.com or our social media to keep up this awesome dialogue. Oh, and don't forget to give us a five-star rating. You're so cheap. Why are you asking them for five-star ratings? <laughs> well, I always ask for the rating I want, not the one I have. You know, like dress for the job you want, not the one you have. That's like the stupidest thing I've heard all day. Arthi, you're so judgmental. What? You need to stop being Listen, judgmental. <laughs> I just think you can't be so demanding. That's all. You ask for what you want. Bleh.